Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, here we are with our second half of the Stephen King 1979 TV miniseries, Salem's Lot. If you haven't already, you might want to go back to our previous episode and listen to the first half because we did this movie in chunks. Yep. It's a three-hour-long movie, so we did the first hour and a half as it was uh, shown on television, and then uh, now we are taking over from right when it was starting to get good <laughs> for the second half. I, I think that what we kind of concluded from the last episode was that the first half was a little, it took its time. It took its time with exposition and pretty much setting everything up. And it really wasn't until a little over an hour in, if not arguably the very end of the first episode of Salem's Lot, did we start to really see stuff happen. Right. Scary stuff, I should say. Not that things weren't going on, but it was just a lot of um, drama between everybody. And I think where we left off was the... um, kid Danny had been buried in the cemetery and uh, he had been of course bitten by uh, his brother then the grave digger whose name was Mark or David Mike I think I don't Mike. know <laughs> there's a couple Mikes in this yeah it's all like Mark Mike David John Danny Susan yeah. these names are really forgettable <laughs> they're right. so normal and common but that's that's the thing about the first movie like yeah it's a lot of setup because there's a lot to set up like There are Mm -hmm. so many characters to meet, and though many of them play relatively minor roles, they they are all a part um, of the action and of what happens, and so it is. It is a lot of setup, and then, strangely enough, once it gets to the action, it becomes far more focused on the central characters and (laughs) that all of these other characters that you know they've spent so much time introducing just become a vampire feast like (laughs) you're right you're right you're absolutely right it's it's so much set up with all these intricate characters and then it just ends up focusing on these same two or three people just start dropping away one by one i guess we got to know the victims a little bit (laughs) But what happens is um, this grave digger mind gets entranced by the coffin that he's burying of Danny, and uh, he leaps in and uh, uncovers the coffin, what little dirt he put on it, opens it up, and of course Danny's inside there, full-on vamp, glowing eyes open. I'm, I'm never going to get over this glowing eye effect, by the way. It's very effective. No, it looks really good. <laughs> yeah. It, it's awesome. Then he, he sits up and bites him, and that's how the first half ends, where we pick up on the second half. We start off kind of focusing a little bit more on the boy. It's Mark, right? Yeah, it is. He's taking it very well that his two friends <laughs> are completely dead. Well, kind of. I mean, but his parents are worried about him because, I don't know, he's not reacting much at all, which yeah. concerns especially his mom. Um, mm-hmm. But his dad's like, you know, he's just like that. You know, he, he never really shows his emotion. Yeah. But they are concerned, and, you know, the guy... Or the dad tries to talk to him, and this kid is um, really into, like, monsters and horror and magic, and the dad is like, why are you so interested in all this stuff? And he's like, I don't know, I just always have been, that's who I am. And the dad picks up a, a set of handcuffs, and he's like, 
um, can you get out of these? And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. Put them on me. And, and the dad does, and um, he, you know, pops right out of him. And, and then he's got some rope sitting right there. He's like, here, tie me up. <laughs> <laughs> and the dad's well, maybe like, some yeah, other time. yeah, like maybe another time. <laughs> and the kid's like, no, seriously, I can get out of any knot. And dad's like, okay. Um, but it, that, I mean, it plays in, in a very small way later, but a funny little setup. I like that scene, though. Honestly, it was nice to have this scene at the beginning of the movie because it speaks to me. I was that kid. Yeah. You know, I I was, you were too, I'm sure. I was into monsters and horror and magic as well, very much into magic growing up. My parents certainly didn't seem very disturbed by it, even though teachers, uh, you know, I would write stories with Freddy Krueger in them, gory stories and stuff. I would write stories I'd show my parents that had killings and blood and stuff in them. And they really surprisingly weren't terribly alarmed by it. They would be like, eh, maybe you want to tone back on this a little bit. And, you know, there was even one time, I think, when the teacher did, I think it was my third grade teacher, had a meeting with my mom and dad, just saying, like, the subject matter of what he writes when he has these creative writing assignments at school always tends towards the dark. And my Mm -hmm. parents' reaction to it was, I'm really proud of them, was just like, okay. And then they came home and said to me, yeah, you might want to tone that down a little bit when you're at school. That freaks teachers out. Yeah, it freaks people out. But at the same time, my dad was writing horror movies for me, even though he didn't enjoy them particularly. I read Stephen King books and all this kind of stuff that I would get from the library quite openly, and they never expressed any concern. But I do think that there are a number of parents who do worry about their kids. Maybe just overall, when we talk about horror, and I think we've brought up this subject before, Mm -hmm. people who aren't into horror sometimes don't get it. They don't get it. Mm -hmm. They they don't. They're like, there must be something wrong with you. There must be some really deep, dark part of you, or some something about your nature must be messed up that you enjoy these kinds of things. And my reaction to them is just like this kid's. It's like, I don't know why. I've just always been into it. Like I can't even explain the appeal i've just always been into it and that's just been my thing and uh it does appeal to me but i couldn't for the life of you tell me why and and i like that the the second part of the movie of this mini series that people are watching on television the whole nation confronts this a little bit mm-hmm. i don't know if it was a big intention but i mean the scene it's a good five minutes of at least of the movie. You see characters like this pop up in horror movies all the time. If I were to rack my brain, I'm sure I could come up with a million examples. But like Fright the night. the the Monster Squad, you know, Fright Night. Oh, also, real quick, uh, Hello Mary Lou Prom Night too. Doesn't that have a guy who's really obsessed with horror in it? I can't uh, remember. I don't remember that movie very well. But you, you see it all the time. And, and the last time we talked, I talked about how Stephen King often writes about teachers and writers because that's who he is. And I, I have a feeling that the reason that these characters pop up in these movies so often is because they are a reflection of the people who are making these movies because obviously the people who make these movies love these movies. You know, why, mm-hmm. why would you build a career in this field in particular? Now, I'm sure there are a lot of people who have careers that they don't love, but in this field in particular, why would you choose this kind of material if it wasn't something that you loved? And I, and I imagine that probably, um, I don't know, Stephen King, writers, directors, actors who are drawn to this genre probably feel much the same way that we do in the way that this kid does. I don't know. I can't tell you exactly why, you know, I, I've talked before how it's kind of like, uh, riding a roller coaster. It's scary, but it's fun because it, 
triggers endorphins and you know kind of a chemical thing like you kind of get mm-hmm. to you kind of get to live vicariously through these characters in these dangerous scenarios in the comfort of your own home knowing yeah. that you are entirely 100% safe but you still get to experience that rush through the characters uh and, and and maybe that's not it at all i don't know but i i don't think i'm a sick person you know i don't i, I i've never I, i've never even been like in a fist fight like i i don't i don't have any inclination towards violence or or anything yeah. like that and i think that most people don't um but it is a misconception i've talked about how my mom she doesn't get it either my dad was into it still is and i imagine that that's kind of how i got into it but my dad's also into like fishing which i could you know care less about so <laughs> it's not quite the opposite of thrilling. <laughs> it's thrilling for like like 30 seconds maybe if you're lucky <laughs> i i you know i enjoy fishing with my dad because i enjoy being with my dad and i do enjoy being outdoors and i particularly i, I love the water and i love being on the water but i'm more content to just let him fish and i'll just sit there and read a book and enjoy the invite you know like mm-hmm. it just doesn't do anything for me and and that's fine but you know he's our our little avatar in this movie plus he's young he's young and i think that you and i and probably many other people look back on this age um very fondly where you know you're 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 coming out of childhood but you're still clinging to some of those childish things in this case and I know that we still do. I know you still do, especially. But, like, you know, the kid's into making models, and mm-hmm. he's got all this horror memorabilia around. And I think that it's a kind of a poignant question. At one point, his dad says, when are you going to grow out of this? Um, and he says, I don't know. Someday, I guess. And <laughs> to to some right. extent, we do, and to some extent, we don't. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I know, I've, I've been to your house. <laughs> Wait a second. I've, I've seen you I've seen your collections and stuff and mm-hmm. and I think that's really cool and I and I think it's cool that you've got, you know, all these comics and the complete DVD set of Tales from the Crypt. You don't grow out of that entirely and I'm glad that we don't. Uh, we wouldn't have been doing this for 500 years if we did. <laughs> I mean, we're ones to talk, right? It's not necessarily <laughs> a childish pursuit. It's just something we started right. pursuing when we were children. And I, I, I doubt that, you know, people grow up absolutely having nothing to do with horror and then, like, by their mid-40s are suddenly enthralled by it. You know, I don't right, think it really... Right. It probably doesn't usually work that way. But another nice thing about having a character like this in the movie is it allows you to skip over a whole bunch of stuff. You've already got that character who totally gets it. He knows all the vampire rules. You know, you don't need to convince him very hard uh, Mm -hmm. about the existence of vampires, you know? And so he does become a key element in the second half, whereas he was almost completely absent from the first half of the movie. That's true. And that's something that's different from the book. Uh, Mark is a key character throughout the entirety of the book, as I remember. And as I remember... Susan plays a much larger role in the book. Mm. Um, And the priest, I don't even remember what the priest's name is, but he is relegated to virtually nothing. Yeah. You don't even see him until the second half. And I don't know what his (laughs) name is. Right. But like in, he was 
pivotal in in the book and uh i guess um his character pops up in some of other uh, king's work i think that he's in one of the books at least from the dark tower series which you know just generally speaking is another thing that i like about king stephen king has really built his own universe uh Mm -hmm. And there are crossovers within that universe. And, and they're often very, very small. But for those of us who are devoted fans, they're, they're really fun little Easter eggs. Um, yeah. like, like Dick Halloran from The Shining shows up for just one chapter in It. And, and there are just other little references. And now that King's son, Joe Hill... Um, has established himself as a very talented writer. I'm I'm a huge fan. If you haven't read Joe Hill stuff, you, Todd, and you listeners, it's great. It's not entirely dissimilar from his dad. He does horror, but it's more... uh, I I would say it's kind of more in the line of fantasy, horror... Some of it, um, he does short stories, he does novels, everything I've read of his I really like, and and he and his dad have done some crossovers, but one of the benefits of being Stephen King's son, it's really easy to license his properties, so... (laughs) (laughs) One would hope, right? One would hope. (laughs) Right, so in Joe Hill's work, there's often a lot of callbacks and and connections to uh, his dad's work and and that's fun too i i I can't recommend him enough he's one of my favorite authors of the moment and i've read almost everything that he's that's cool well yeah dad just talks to him and he's you know okay and then uh, the police have done some research uh you know they just almost some of this almost feels like quickly filling us in on the facts from the first movie in case we forgot well, you know, right, I, right. I don't know how the, much time passed between the first. Was it two nights, two subsequent nights? Was it one week, uh, one one week, oh, and one another? No, week? I mean I it know. was it was right away because yeah, those reports come back. Like the the constable had ordered reports on Stryker, Barlow, and Ben, um, and they all come back with no information, <laughs> like mm-hmm. <Yep. laughs> nothing that we didn't already know. Um, really. Um, but then we see Ben and his teacher friend Burke at dinner and they're just having kind of casual conversation. But then Mike, the grave digger, like collapses on their table. Yep. They have him sit down and he's out of it. And he, he says he's sick. He's got visible puncture wounds on his neck. Yeah. And he, he says like, he doesn't know what happened. He he woke up in the cemetery. Like, he must have slept there all night, but he doesn't remember. All he remembers is he heard singing and seeing bright, scary eyes. And he says, I remember a dream. There, there was somebody out there, and I let them in. And this becomes a motif as we see more and more townspeople, most of whom we know on some level, mm. in this same state dazed and confused and they talk about having strange dreams and they talk about people visiting them in the night often people that we already know are dead like for example mrs glick danny's mom passes out at some point and says you know danny's been visiting me at night and several other people say the same thing what gets me and what i remember is that this happens really fast from this point on like all of a sudden 
everybody is getting turned. And uh, Ben even explains that. Like, he's talking to Susan at one point. Susan has been gone. She went for a job interview at Boston and has been gone for several days. But she comes back as all these weird things are happening. In fact, like, Ben gets attacked by her ex-boyfriend just because he's a jealous butthole. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but uh, Ben gets put in the hospital. And when he comes out of the hospital, Susan greets him and she's like, Dad called me. Oh, oh. it was uh, just a little knock. Uh, I know you're okay. There's more, Ben. Ned Tebbets died last night. What? They found him dead this morning in town jail. Dad examined him. Pernicious anemia. It's just like the good boy. Yes, only Ned had high blood pressure. And Danny's mother died this afternoon. Same symptoms? I think so. What does your father say? He wants to talk to you. And Jason Burke. Jason Burke? He's here, Ben. Here? In the hospital. Intensive care. What? Heart attack. <laughs> and there's a baby that's dead and like there are bodies missing from the morgue and your teacher had a heart attack and he's in the ICU like it, it's just happens all at once and and as they kind of start to figure it out because Burke had invited Mike to stay at his house since he wasn't feeling well and Burke had noticed the puncture marks and in the night he had heard like he calls Ben in the morning says, come over. By the way, if you've got a crucifix, bring it with you. Mm-hmm. So Ben comes over and Burke's like, I swear, I heard him talking to somebody in the night. I heard him let somebody in. So let's go check on him. And so then they go check on him and he's dead. Uh, and the window is open. And Burke said, I, I closed and locked the window. I'm absolutely 100% sure of it. And so they but but the puncture wounds are gone, which I don't really understand. No, I don't get that either. I'm guessing it's because he's now been turned full vampire, so like they have restorative properties or or something. Oh, that could be. But then he disappears from the morgue and he shows up and tries to lure Burke out and he's really scary. The mm. the Mike vampire is really scary. But I guess because Burke kind of suspects what's going on, he's able to resist more than the previous people who didn't really know what was going on. And he doesn't look in his eyes, and he holds up a cross, and using the cross, forces vampire Mike out through the window. But this just keeps happening. Yeah, Butthole Ned gets attacked in jail. At some point, Mark is sitting with his parents and the priest. I think it's because they are so concerned about his fascination with magic and monsters. Oh, and it's also because Danny visited Mark to try to get him to come out. Danny visited Mark, and that was creepy, but Mark had his, his crucifix snapped off of his little model he was working on. Yeah, it was like a model of like a cemetery, right? You know, he's too smart for this, but also you're wondering, because he's still, these vampires can entrance people. But it seems like if you kind of know, uh-huh. if you more or less kind of know or suspect what might be going on, then you have an ability to resist this if you don't stare too deeply at their at their eyes. Who goes with Ben to see the priest before this? Oh, it's Ben and her dad. At some point, after Ned surprises Ben and beats him up, and then Ben talks to uh, the doctor in the hospital. 
Right, because the doctor is also Susan's dad. Yeah. He and the teacher approach the doctor after their run-in with Mike. And, of course, the doctor doesn't quite believe him. Ned surprises Ben, beats him up. Ben goes to the hospital and and talks to the doctor. He still doesn't really believe him, but he asks for a crucifix anyway. And he's like, I guess we can make that work. In the meantime, Jason, Jason is his, his teacher. He's reading up on vampires, and that's when he goes upstairs and has his encounter with Mike. But he ends up succumbing to a sudden heart attack. Is that something that Mike made happen, you think? Or do you think he was just shocked by the whole affair? That I think he was just shocked by the whole affair. We had seen him. Uh, he had been struggling seemingly with heart pains in the night. Um, and then And then after the gravedigger died and came back and confronted him. He had heart pains again and apparently had heart attack. He's an older guy, so I I assume it was just natural. That makes sense. Well, Ned ends up in jail. We just see another quick scene where he's laying in his jail cell and his jail cell mysteriously opens and uh, he sits up. And this is the first time, I think, right, that we get to see full-on Barlow, the evil vampire. I think you're right. It's just like a quick face shot. Very rat-like. Blue. Yeah, he's bald. Uh, Very prominent fangs, but they're not like his... They're like his front two teeth. Yeah, they're they're not his canines. Yeah, they're they're like his front two, or, or... They're closer together than you typically would expect of a vampire it's very much like nosferatu yeah i think i think but i feel like the first time we get a really good look at him is when mark is meeting with his parents and and the priest because he has seen danny and he's told his parents and and they think that there's something wrong with him (laughs) exactly so uh so they call in the priest and out of nowhere and for reasons unclear to me the whole house starts to shake yeah and then both striker and barlow show up just seemingly out of nowhere it's an odd scene right because there's no like are they just on their rounds (laughs) yeah (laughs) no it it seems like they're targeting them for a reason i i guess the priest but why like the priest isn't on to them, you know. Like, yeah. I I have no idea what's going on. But but they show up and and we see at this point, you know, we've seen Stryker a million times. He's just a regular guy. But now we see uh, Barlow, and you know, not only does he look strange in his physicality and his face, but he dresses like Nosferatu, like. He's dressed like a bat, like in a cape and all black. Yeah. And he bashes Mark's parents. He bashes their heads together and kills them. Yeah. That's true to the book, too. I don't remember if that's exactly how they died in the book, but uh, Mark is left an orphan. And it's a weird scene. It ends with, kind of, Barlow is holding Mark like in a chokehold. And Stryker says to the priest, What would you give for this miserable boy? What do you ask? What would you give to reprieve him this night to save him for another night? What do you want? The master wants you. Throw away your cross, face the master, your faith against his faith. Could you do that? Is your faith enough? Then do it. And trust him to let the boy go? They let 
Mark go and Mark leaves and but he's like I, I he killed my parents and he's he, he looks at Barlow he's like I'm gonna kill you and then he runs away and then there's this weird interaction between the priest and 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 Barlow that I don't even I, ultimately I don't even know what happened yeah I'm not sure either I guess we're just supposed to believe the priest died I guess like like they just kind of look at each other and Barlow like starts to approach him and the priest is holding up the cross, but it doesn't really seem to be having much of an effect, which I don't understand because I feel like the cross works every other time. Well, he says it doesn't work against the master. That's what um, that's what um, Stryker, uh, Stryker. Stryker, Stryker says. Yeah, it doesn't work. Your cross won't work against the master and and Barlow grabs the cross and kind of bends it i guess and tosses yeah. it down on the ground and i think that's where the scene ends is with the the cross on the ground and then cut to something cut to commercial probably <laughs> mm-hmm. and then we're done so like i guess the priest is out of the picture and his parents are dead and um mm-hmm. you know mark is allowed to run away by the way did you notice in the scene just before this when ben and uh the doctor we're meeting with or whoever it was we're meeting with the priest that shot of the castle of the church on the outside that they it had like a huge pendulum attached yeah. to a clock wasn't that bizarre it was weird i've never seen anything like that it was clearly animated on there i mean there's i i thought maybe for some reason that was going to have some significance later because it was such an odd thing why they went through the trouble of putting that in the movie for like 2 seconds right apropos of nothing i i yeah. i don't know at this point ben has convinced dr norton to examine mrs glick danny's mom because mm-hmm. she has died and it's funny cuz like the doctor i mean he's going to do it and like he looks at her and and, and he's basically like it she's the same as the other ones I've looked at. Like, she's not showing any signs of rigor mortis. Even though she is dead, she doesn't have a a pulse. And he leaves to go get something? I don't know. But Ben is sitting there and he makes a cross out of tongue depressors, which I thought was kind of hilarious. Yeah, and he starts reciting, you know, Bible verses. (laughs) Yeah, and, and and he says there are no atheists in foxholes, which is a phrase that I've heard before and I can only imagine is true. You know, when, uh, you know right. when, when you're in that big uh, trouble, belief, no belief, start praying just in case. Do what you need to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, the body starts moving under the sheet and uh, he kind of stands up and then the body sits up and it's Mark's mother is turned and she just sits there and she almost looks confused, really. Which I would imagine would be how you would initially wake up as a new vampire. Yeah, it's 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 Dan it's Danny's mom. I, I don't know. Oh, if Danny's Mark's mom. Pa- yeah. I don't know if Mark's parents get turned or not. We don't we don't see. That's true. But uh, yeah, I mean, when we had seen her before, when she had been in that kind of insensible state, and she had said that Danny um, had come to her and had told her that they could be together forever, and so when she wakes up, she's kind of calling to him. Um, mm-hmm. and, and she does seem a little confused, but when she sees Ben, then she's like, oh, I'm a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> but thank God Ben made that cross because he uh-huh. just approaches her and Bill runs into the room at the same time, thankfully, so he can see this go down. And then he approaches her and, uh, puts that, presses that cross against her forehead 
which burns it, as you would suspect. Yeah, Evil Ed style. Just disappears. Like, it just fades out in a really cheap effect. <laughs> uh-huh. Which I, I, I guess the cross killed her? Yeah, I guess. I don't understand that bit. Uh, so you can kill them with the cross by touching them? I, I don't know. It, she just disappears. Literally mm-hmm. just dissolves away. It's not a pile of ash or anything. Mm-hmm. She's just gone. After that, uh, Ben runs to Susan, tells her you got to leave town. Susan never does leave town. No. <laughs> she says it, she will. Right. He <laughs> says, you know, by sundown, get your mom and as many other people as you convince to go. And he and Bill are going to stay behind. I'm going to stay behind with your dad and help him fight. We're going to fight the vampires together. And yeah. Ben goes to the police station. This is the point where it's just like, they're just a couple more scenes to make you realize that pretty much everybody in town is going to, is turned, everybody, not, mm-hmm. you know, he goes to the police station. The policeman's called in sick for the first time ever. And his on duty cop there isn't looking so well, but he's complaining about visions that he had the night before. And it's like, oh mm-hmm. shit. And he runs out and, uh, Susan. Susan goes to his room, the room that Ben's been renting, and the landlady is is mm-hmm. clearly, you know, mid-turn and talks about having dreams of her ex-husband uh, visiting. For some dumb, I sort of feel I unmotivated. I don't get reason. it. Yes. Yeah, why? She just decides to go to the house. Like, I know that this happened in the book, too, and I can only imagine... That there was a reason, but in the movie, it just seems like she's just an idiot. Like, yeah, not exactly. only just just to go, but to go by herself. Like, what was her plan? What was her objective? Like, did she just want to look at the house? Like, seemed like I don't, it because she wasn't even going to stay. Like, as she goes, she steps out. It looks like she's going to approach it. Maybe thinks better, and then she sees some movement in the grass, and uh, and uh, you know everything's kind of elevated. So uh, she looks up and sees on the hill where the house is that uh, boom, there's Mark with two stakes in his hand uh-huh. running towards the house. So he's going to go and and take care of business and ke- d- pr- fulfill his promise of killing the vampires, which is cool. And being Mark with as a magician and whatnot, an escape artist, he has a lock picking set, which I thought was awesome. And uh, he picks the lock quite quickly into the. Uh, seller and goes in and she follows him in but when she goes in there like he's gone he's run way ahead Mm -hmm. uh and so now there's just a lot of creeping around the house and you know she leaves the seller and goes up into the main house and the house is impressive i really liked this set huge yeah the beautiful and even the detail of just it, it, it's a house that has absolutely been neglected for 20 years and nobody's done anything to fix it up right so there's just crap dust in the air there's dust in the air which is a really nice effect well there's mold and moss like growing up the walls everything yeah and 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 there's tons like the the entire like decorative motif is taxidermy like Like, to an insane degree to the point where at one point mark opens a drawer and it's just full of glass eyes Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you would use in the in the animals for the taxidermy it's nuts Another really cool touch that I really liked was there is a lot of taxidermy and there are heads of deer or other animals with antlers uh, on the walls. But within those antlers are the corpses of other animals like dogs and in yeah. and, and, and various forms of decay, like some that look like they've been killed only recently and some that are like all bone. And I wasn't really sure what to make of that. I'm like, it looks amazing. It looks super creepy, and I love it. But I didn't know if that was supposed to suggest that, like, they were 
Barlow or, or somebody was feeding off of these dogs. I'm not sure, but it looked great. It's hard to pick apart like a backstory, you know, to kind of fit why there's so much taxidermy around here and dead animals. It would have been nice to have had a, a line or two in the movie that might have foreshadowed this or kind of explained it a little bit. But well, I mean, right, presumably because... it was the, a previous inhabitant, right? Certainly Barlow and uh, and Straker didn't have enough time to do or inclination to do all this stuff. One would think, but then there's all, you know, in the first movie, the caretaker, the cemetery guy had a, a dog and it was killed presumably by Straker, but never, we, we don't know why. Mm. And I read something that, like, if you look closely, uh, the dog is is near or underneath a tombstone that is maybe Hubie. Is it Mantle? Is it the Mantle House? Is that what it's called? Marston Whatever. House. Marston. Yeah, Hubie yeah, Marston. It, so, so maybe it was some sort of sacrifice. I don't know. It's never explained, but dead dog dead dogs i don't know but the house looks cool and they're both in there and they're just kind of snooping around separately yeah and the the whole like again the whole like mark's a kid so i'll give him a pass you know for being impulsive and not terribly bright you know he thinks he's avenging his parents i get that susan's a grown-ass adult and has been presented as being intelligent (laughs) but not here (laughs) <laughs> right, but no, no, yeah. and like she, there, she's not even discreet. Like she's just walking around in this huge, ha- huge house. Like Mark, like well, okay, uh, or the vampires, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, like you're in someone else's house. Come on, <laughs> and and then um, Ben and Bill show up. Well, f- yeah, but first uh, they. They they're, they're they're separated at first, and then they find each other. But as soon as they find each other, they hear noise in the house and and mark's like they're here and so mark goes into a room where he heard noise and susan is outside and he's not responding to her so she goes in there and she sees that um mark has been knocked out by straker and straker leads her away and i I got the impression that he was kind of able to entrance her as well and just leads her away. Yeah. And then Stryker ties up Mark in a chair and he's like, what have you done with Susan? And he says, uh, I, I took her to what she came here for. I, I took her to meet the man she came here to meet. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, like the the constable is leaving town, and Ben like chews his ass. Like the whole town's in trouble, and you're leaving. He's like, "Yep, I'm getting out of here." But he gives Ben a gun, um, and then it cuts back up to Mark uh, in the house, and he frees himself from the knots, which we knew he could do because he told us earlier. And then mm-hmm. that's when Ben and 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 Bill, uh, Bill they talk about the fact that you know Susan has not shown up to get her mother out of town uh and they so they go to the church they collect holy water and then they head up to the house and i guess this is you know the the finale now they collect they go through the trouble collecting the holy water is the holy water ever used no in fact he drops it and breaks it like right at a pivotal moment Right at a pivotal moment. That's right. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> so so they go into the house and there's more creeping around. You know, they run into Mark. Mark's trying to leave, but then Mark kind of comes back in. And mm-hmm. anyway, there's just a lot more creeping around. And um, Bill goes up the stairs. And this time, which 
I just swear that we never saw it when she went up the stairs. And we we had a shot in that direction. Anyway, this time when he goes up the stairs, uh, he turns and looks to the right. And the hallway ends in just a wall that just has antlers sticking Mm -hmm. out of it every which way. And so then there's a door creeps open and shuts and there's noise. And so he slowly goes to this door. Straker is behind the door. He opens it and just starts walking very deliberately towards him. Bill does nothing but back away maybe two small steps. And Straker, with this sort of superhuman strength, grabs him by the shoulders, lifts him off his feet, and walks him straight into those antlers. Just completely Mm -hmm. impales him. This is the other scene that I remember as a kid. As a kid, I remembered it as the vampire doing this. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's Straker. And as a kid, this shocked the hell out of me. It's pretty graphic for network television. It is, and it kind of comes out of nowhere. Now, I mean... Sadly, you know, while he's like kind of hanging there and we see that shot, which is pretty graphic, like already like the fake prop antlers are kind of bending a little bit. (laughs) Oh, I didn't notice. It loses a little bit of its luster the longer the the screen lingers on it, but it's a cool thing. And and I this was a change from the book. As I remember in the book, instead of this happening, he actually falls through the floor and gets eaten up by rats. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. And so then Straker very slowly <laughs> grabs a post and uh, comes down the stairs towards Ben and Mark. And Ben just opens fire on him a bunch of times. And at first it doesn't seem to affect him, but then he slows down and he falls and dies right Yeah, there on the stair. It's a little bit anticlimactic. It, yeah, yeah, it's a little anticlimactic for his character. But at the same time, I kind of don't get it because... In um, Fright Night, the the main vampire's familiar also had superhuman strength and was hard to kill, but ultimately didn't it turn out he was like some other kind of demon or, or something? Like he wasn't yeah. human either. I had assumed that Straker was human, but he's able with no trouble at all to pick up a grown man into the air. Yeah. Uh, and then he endures a whole pistol's worth of rounds before finally falling down and, and dying. So, But he dies, you know? Yeah. He had talked about how he and Barlow had been partners for a very long time. So I don't know if it's just Barlow's influence or, or what it is, but maybe he's got some supernatural abilities uh maybe including long life i don't know ultimately it doesn't no. matter because he's dead now he's dead <laughs> it's really anticlimactic i really was disappointed in that the whole thing be, really is kind of anticlimactic it's true the ending is a bit of a disappointment because after this happens then sun's going down soon we need to go find these vampires so they go into the basement the basement stairs have been knocked away so they kind of fall, and uh, Mark injures his foot, but that doesn't seem to matter. And then they poke around very slowly around there a little bit, and they find a basically a compartment. Mm-hmm. Break. That's when he bro- when he drops his holy water while he's mm-hmm. trying to break the um, the padlock off of it. And when he opens it up, they look inside, and there's the big long coffin and a whole pile of vampires mm-hmm. <laughs> just just sleeping every which way yeah. in there. Uh, it's a nest. I imagine in the book, because uh, I don't remember it very well, but I imagine in the book there must have been like a half a town's worth full of vampires in there or something. Right. 
I think the movie is supposed to give the impression the town's overrun, but it doesn't give a good job of it because we've only seen a dozen or so characters. And though we see them get picked off and the cop leave town, you know, there's no sense. There's no grand shot or anything of, of an empty town or of, of, of anything like that. It's just those 12 or so characters that we saw previously who are there. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of a limitation of the of the budget right if i do remember the book correctly it quite literally was virtually everybody in town had been turned Mm. like this this was now a town of vampires but you'd never know it from the movie really right you could imply it sort of but i know that in one of stephen king's short story collections there is a continuation it's not really a continuation because it doesn't follow the same figures but uh, Jerusalem's lot is still yes. known as a town of vampires, and people stay away from it. And of course, in in the story, some dummy doesn't stay away from it, and that's why it's a scary story. <laughs> that's what makes it a scary story. <laughs> Otherwise, that would be an interesting story, wouldn't it? Oh, the the vampires are going to the supermarket. The vampires, are, you know, meeting each other for coffee at the coffee shop. A little bit of less drama there. Um, yeah, so then they pull out the, the coffin, and they open it up, and he's in there, and they're like, oh, the sun's going down, the sun's going down, but, well, it's, the vampire wakes up, but he isn't able to do much. He kind of reaches out, but by now, Ben uh, already has a stake up against him. Mark runs towards him to help or something, and he's like, no, stay away, and he, like, flings him across the room, almost with a superhuman strength of his own, and Ben whacks himself against a table and, and sits there with his back to the opening where all of these vampires in there, by the way, are waking up and crawling ominously towards him. I think that was my favorite shot because it was cool. they're crawling out of the dark. And not only are they crawling out of the dark, but the focus, the camera focus yeah. is on Mark. So yeah. they're, they're, they're crawling out of the dark, but they're also in fuzzy focus. And and we can recognize them. These are people that we know. Mm-hmm. They're like cats. They're like they're creeping mm-hmm. up really slowly. And idiot Ben's back is totally to them. <laughs> yeah, Mark. I mean, Mark. Uh, uh, eventually, like at, at the last moment, I don't know if he hears something or what, but uh, he turns around and, and closes the door and is able to lock them in there. So disaster averted. And right, and just think talking about it and thinking about it, like in the moment I, I, I wasn't thinking about it as much, but it really is very anticlimactic and I don't mm. remember the book feeling that way. I felt like there was a lot of build to a climax in the book and here, like he quite literally just pulls the coffin out, opens it, and stakes him. Like that's it. Yeah, like that's there's it. no you know, Barlow's supposed to be this presumably centuries old master being. vampire. He cert- yeah. He 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 didn't seem very hard to take out. Like No. Find him, pull his coffin out, stake him, call it a day. <laughs> and that's basically what they do. They run out of there and they light the whole house on fire and then they end up in a car and driving away and um Mark says to Ben what are we going to do now and Ben's basically like we're going to drive them out again the implication that there are many many more uh in the town mm-hmm. we'll drive them out of their hiding places we'll purify Salem's lot and the others will be on the run the others mm-hmm. of course also including Susan mm-hmm. so uh right well that was something we haven't seen her and i thought that was really kind of strange and again i don't remember how it plays out in the book but yeah where did she go she just disappears and we don't know what happens to her i mean ultimately we kind of do but 
the whole time, like, when he's setting the house on fire, like, he looks up and he's like, I'm sorry, Susan. Like, I guess presumably she's in there, but it just, she, she feels like an afterthought. Yeah. Really in the whole movie, she feels kind of like an afterthought. She's, she's not important. She doesn't do anything. But she's always there. You're right. She just doesn't do anything. Uh, It's so sad, really. And then we come back to what we saw in the very beginning of the first episode, which was uh, two years later in Mexico when they're at that church and they had just filled their vials with holy water and it lights up and says, and they say, oh, they're near or something like that. And I guess, what, where are they going? Or do they I don't know. They the go, they go, somewhere? they go to Luke Skywalker's house on Tatooine. <laughs> 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 Oh my God, you're right. (laughs) Yeah, they 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 go to this kind of like Adobe (laughs) place where they're staying, I guess. And uh, Mark like stays in the living room, just standing there. And Ben walks into the bedroom where there's just like a a small bed or a cot or something. And uh, Susan is laying there in all white, looking very very beautiful, like she's posing for a painting or something. But her Mm -hmm. eyes are closed. Eyes closed. Yeah. And as he approaches, she's like, "I've been looking for you for so long. It was so hard to find you, but now I found you, and we can be together. We can be together forever." That's his promise. And she opens her eyes and she's a vampire. And it kind of seems like, you know, she's enchanting him and he's coming closer and like they're going to kiss. And, you know, it looks like she's, you know, preparing to bite him. But we see him raise his stake up behind him and he stakes her. It's smart, I guess, to try to end this on a sad, emotional, kind of tragic scene. I don't remember exactly how it happened. I don't think that this is how it happened, but I do know that Susan was turned mm. in the book. So she was she was lost. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't remember how it ended, frankly. I do remember that it was that frame, you know, where they they did come back. And it, it seems and then so Ben tells Mark like there will be more of them. And and so, you know, we're left thinking that they are just going to be devoting the their run. lives. Yeah, they're like the Van Helsings of the Stephen King world, you know. Yeah, just, right. Uh, yeah, so it's um, again a very anticlimactic. I'm with you on that 100. percent I was so disappointed in the ending. Um, it's just how easy it was. I mean, it's just like, oh, okay, now we've all finally figured out they're vampires and they're up at the at the house. Let's all go to the house and stake them, and then they do. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and and it's unfortunate because you know we talked yesterday or or last time we talked about how. You know, there was so much setup, and I, I assured you that the second part was better. And I do think that it's better. Um, there's there's more action, there are more scares, and there, you yeah. know, I think there's a lot of stuff going on here that is really spooky. The vampires are scary. They're scary looking. They're a menacing presence. Just the notion that this is spreading so fast. And, and Ben describes it. You know, he's like, it's, you know, first there's one, then there's two, then it's two times two, then it's four times four. Like, yeah, exponentially, right? Di- yeah, it's a disease. I mean, it's just spreading like a, a disease. Um, and, and that idea in and of itself is is frightening. And so... I enjoyed the second movie. The mm-hmm. The ending is just, it's a little lackluster. Like, it, at the end, I was like, oh, how stupid, I hated it. But yeah. 
it was a little lackluster, which is which is too bad because overall, I think that this is a a, a pretty good movie for a made-for-TV movie from 1979. Yeah, not bad at all. It's pretty good. No, it's not bad at all, and and it's it's atmospheric and it it's it's pretty faithful to the source material, which I also enjoyed. It's not amazing. I I don't love it. I I, I wouldn't cite it as one of my favorite movies though there are you know film directors out there who do but it's a good story it was remade in the 90s uh, again as a made for tv miniseries rob Lowe mm-hmm. um starred as ben and uh, i don't know who else was in it but i'm sure lots of notable people because that was the trend was that the return to salem's lot or was that a true remake this was a true remake there was a, oh. another movie called return to salem's lot i don't know i don't know anything about it i do know that this miniseries was so successful that they considered extending it to like a, a, series. a series right yeah um and it just didn't happen but uh, yeah the, the there was return to salem's lot then there was the the made for tv remake that you know follows the original story um and now there's a new remake in the works right now i mean it looks like it may be done mm-hmm. um directed yeah, by it's to this year yeah directed by gary doberman um, who also wrote uh, the screenplay. Not a lot of super recognizable uh, names, aside from Alfre Woodard, is in it, uh, playing a character that I don't remember. I'm looking at the IMDb page, and one of the things that I really like about it is that uh, it's far more diverse than this movie. I don't think there's a <laughs> single person of color in this entire no. movie. <laughs> no. Not at all. Not even a slightly like, like in the background, like, nothing. European person or something in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's it's nice to see uh, a, a, a wider variety of uh, people. Far from a lack of diversity, the uh, the town policeman has never heard the word chow before, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that little scene was so cute. Bye. Chow, constable. Chow? Chow. That's a familiar Italian expression meaning goodbye. I didn't know you're Italian. I'm not. The word is. Well, you learn something new every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you learn you something moron. new every day. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Oh, I mean, God. that's I, I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. It's fine. I'm glad that we uh, got around to doing it. I think it's worth talking about. I think it's worth seeing. Um, it's not going to yeah. knock your socks off, but uh, it, especially if you're a Stephen King fan or um, if, like us, you were a fan of these event miniseries from the, you know, especially like the 80s and 90s. It's what you would expect it to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's nostalgic. And I overall, I enjoyed it. And I would say, too, if you're looking for something with a mixed crowd or like like maybe watch with your family if you have younger kids. Yeah. Some of the imagery in here would be pretty frightening for a, a kid who's a little too young. Um, sure. You might have to deal with some nightmares. But ultimately, it's pretty tame as far as it's not graphically showing anything. And, uh, really. and it, it is well-paced, so or slow, slowly paced, I should say. So yeah, it, it, it would be a good option, perhaps, to uh, watch with your with a family, sure. a PG as it is. So, Well, thank you again for listening to our episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us just by searching Two Guys 
and a Chainsaw Podcast, where we have our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, website, twoguys.red40net.com. Just leave us a comment any one of those places. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash chainsaw podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider supporting us over there. We have some freebies for you, an exclusive interview, some mini-sodes that we put out a couple times a month, uh, and also access to the unedited versions of our recordings, as well as some influence over what movies we're going to do next. We just uh, take our requests and we pull them over there to decide which one we're going to do next. Until next time, I am Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Chainsaw.